This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from history to business, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. We will produce them, and we will play them back. They are some of our favorites. The American people, you, our listeners, are terrific writers and storytellers. In the annals of American capitalism, there is probably no crazier, wilder, more chaotic boom to bust and back again phenomenon than the Comstock load in the 1860s, the richest couple of square miles on Earth. This small section of dirt changed the destiny of the United States. Here to tell this rags-to-riches frontier tale is Old West historian Roger McGrath. McGrath is a professor in Southern California and the author of Gunfighters, Highwaymen, and Vigilantes, Violence on the Frontier. Here's Roger. If ever there were real-life figures who could have been characters in a Horatio Alger novel, it was the Silver Kings. John Mackey, James Fair, William O'Brien, and James Flood epitomized the rags-to-riches American dream. John Mackey is the engineering genius of the Silver Kings. Born in Ireland in 1831, he immigrates with his family to New York in 1840. He reaches the California gold fields in 1851. He enjoys hard physical work and mining camp life. He has almost no formal education and had stuttered badly when young, but he is blessed with extraordinary intelligence. James Fair is a mine superintendent without peer and a shrewd financier. Born in Ireland in 1831, he immigrates with his family to Illinois during the early 1840s. He has enormous energy, a trenchant mind, and a natural aptitude for all things mechanical. He joins the gold rush to California in 1849. William O'Brien is born in Ireland in 1826 and brought to New York as a small child. By the time he joins the gold rush of 49, he has grown into a large man of erect carriage. He will soon have a head of prematurely white hair. His size, posture, and hair give him a dignified appearance. Unlike his partners, he is soft-spoken, with an avuncular, kindly quality about him. He is the least forceful of the Silver Kings, but his gregarious and genial nature make him the most popular and ideal for public relations. James Flood is the only Silver King not to have been born in Ireland. He's born in New York in 1826, shortly after his Irish immigrant parents arrive. He catches the gold fever in 1849 and sails around the Horn to California. He has a quick wit, a shrewd mind, a volatile temper, and a powerful drive to succeed. He is a genius in trading stocks and in finance. Mackie Fair, O'Brien, and Flood all spend the early 1850s prospecting and mining in California, and each has some success. With his earnings from the diggings, O'Brien opens a marine supply store in San Francisco. Flood, with the money he has made, opens a livery and carriage shop just down the street from O'Brien. Both lose their businesses, though, in the Depression of 1855. They then join forces and open a saloon. O'Brien reasons the only thing that does not go down in a depression is the consumption of alcohol. He's right, and their saloon thrives. Flood handles the business end of the operation while O'Brien greets customers and serves roast beef sandwiches that come complimentary 
with a drink. By the early 1860s, Flood and O'Brien are dabbling in mining stock, buying and selling shares in mines that tap into the great Comstock load in Nevada. Flood has an uncanny ability in stock trading. Within a few years, he and O'Brien amass a small fortune. In 1868, they open their own stock brokerage office in San Francisco. Mackey and Fair, working separately, also spend the early 1850s prospecting in California. Here's Comstock Lode historian Ronald James speaking to us at the location of the historic Comstock Lode strike. The first miners who came here were after gold. Gold's easy. Gold doesn't combine with many things, so you can actually even pick it out of, the, of their washed dirt with tweezers and you hope for a nugget, but you find little flakes of gold. And that's how you can pull the gold out. What they weren't expecting was anything else that would be valuable. The two miners who were coming up here, a couple of Irish immigrants, were just looking for a good place to, to dam up a, a natural spring so they could get water because they were placer mining like the original California gold miners of the of 1849 and they were hoping that they could find some water throw some dirt into their uh, long toms which were these wooden boxes and wash the dirt while they were damming a natural spring they found which was right up here they started throwing some of the dirt in there and found immediately that they were uncovering several ounces of gold and it was a very good day, and it was the first of many good days. In fact, 20 years worth of good days. They were complaining for those first few weeks after the strike in June of 1859. These early miners complained about this blue mud that gummed up their works because as you wash away the lighter soil, it leaves gold behind, but it was also leaving behind this blue mud that was really obnoxiously heavy and it was hard to separate it from the, from the gold. So after several weeks, they took a, an ore sample over to California and said, what exactly do we have here? And what they found was that it, if you had a ton of this stuff, it would produce over $800 in gold when gold was selling for $16 an ounce. But what was really surprising that it was that it would produce over $3,000 in silver when silver was selling for $1.60 an ounce. And so that's really where everyone understood just how wealthy this ore body, or using the Cornish word load, was. And then it became known as the Comstock load. When they learn of the Comstock load strike at Virginia City, they head over the Sierras to Nevada. The people who came to the Comstock were an international body of, of people. Nevada actually had, in, in the 1870 census, more foreign-born per capita than any other state in the nation, you know, more than the great immigrant states of, you think of Massachusetts and Boston and New York and how vibrantly international those places were, Chicago. A lot of Europeans, obviously, a large group of Chinese uh, lived in, in, here. Uh, they, they came from all over. They often arrived as single men. And so it, it was a, a very masculine community. And when we come back, more on the lives of these four risk takers, James Flood, John Mackey, James Fair, and William O'Brien, the Silver Kings. The story of the Comstock Lode continues here on Our American Stories.
And we continue with our American stories and the story of John Mackey, James Fair, James Flood, and William O'Brien, the Silver Kings. Let's pick up with Roger McGrath, where we last left off. Mackey works as a pick and shovel miner for $4 a day, then as a timberman for six. Soon he develops his own business, excavating and fortifying tunnels. Much of his pay is in the form of stock certificates. Now, most of these prove worthless, but a few give him enough money to buy the Kentuck, a mine whose ore has supposedly been exhausted. Mackey sinks a new shaft in the Kentuck and hits a rich deposit. During the next several years, the mine pays over a million dollars in dividends, huge money in the 1860s. Mackey also has said he will retire as soon as he has 25,000 in the bank. Well, now he has many times that, but his appetite has only been whetted for new adventures and enterprises. While Mackey is working the Kentuck, James Fair becomes superintendent of the Ufer, one of the richest mines on the Comstock. In 1868, he enters into a partnership to develop new mining properties with Mackey. I'm standing at the base of the Ophir pit, and they called it Ophir after Ophir, the gold mine of King Solomon in the Old Testament. By asserting that this was the Ophir mine, they were claiming that this was a mine of biblical proportions, and they got it right because Hundreds of millions of dollars came out of the ground beginning right here. Back in San Francisco, Jim Flood and Bill O'Brien take notice of these two young upstarts on the Comstock. Soon they are discussing joining forces. And in 1869, the San Francisco stockbrokers and the Comstock miners form a partnership. By the early 1870s, through wise investments and daring gambles, the four Irishmen are challenging William Ralston of the Bank of California for control of the Comstock. In 1872, they buy the Consolidated Virginia Mine for $100,000 from Ralston's right-hand man in Virginia City, William Sharon. Sharon gleefully reports to Ralston the Irishmen have been taken. The Consolidated Virginia, says Sharon, is a bankrupt piece of property. Over a million dollars has already been wasted in the mine in fruitless exploration. Mackey and Fair have a hunch if they cut a new tunnel at a deeper level, they will hit a vein of ore. For several months, they tunnel, pouring 200,000 into the consolidated Virginia, but hoisting up nothing but worthless rock. William Sharon roars with laughter. Then one day, Mackey and Fair hit a delicately thin vein of ore. They try to follow it, but it disappears. They find it again, but again it disappears. They find it a third time. This time the vein begins to widen, to a foot, to several feet, to a half dozen feet, to 12 feet. Mackey and Fair send word to Flood and O'Brien in San Francisco. The stockbrokers quickly buy up as much outstanding consolidated Virginia stock as they can. The deeper the new shaft is sunk in the consolidated Virginia, the wider the vein becomes. At the 1,500-foot level, the vein is more than 50 feet wide. The ore is so rich, waste rock has to be added to it to put it through the stamp mill. The Irishmen have discovered the very heart of the Comstock load, what is called 
the Big Bonanza. For the rest of their lives, they are known as the Silver Kings. Here again is Ronald James. In 1873, they found what was called the Big Bonanza, which was a, a, a huge deposit of gold and silver that if Virginia City wasn't famous before, and it was, it then was permanently famous. And I'm not sure without the Big Bonanza, we would have the Cartwrights and the, and the television show Bonanza. Here, the, the Comstock load, the combination of gold and silver, started expanding as they went underground to five feet, 10 feet, at, and at its, at its widest, up to 60 feet wide of nearly pure gold and silver. I mean, obviously mixed it with some rock, but you had, to, you had to dig it all out. You couldn't stop doing that. The problem is you cannot find a log stout enough to span 60 feet, even 20 feet without snapping, because it has to hold up a mountain and mountains want to collapse in on empty space. So they brought in a German immigrant by the name of Philip Didesheimer, who developed the square set timbering method. And it was basically a series of cubes that uh, could be in modular fashion added to so that whatever the stope, the empty space left over when you dug out all the gold and silver, whatever that stope was shaped like, you could fill it up with a stout framework of timber. And then you would fill it back with waste rock as you dug even deeper in, inside the mine. So it was a really nice, stable way to support a mine as you were pursuing precious metals. And that was exported throughout the world. It's only the first of many inventions, flat wire cable, the safety cage. This was the first place where uh, dynamite was experimented with in a big way underground. Uh, it was the first place where uh, uh, air compressed drills were used. Uh, so it became one invention after the next that defined international underground mining for the next 50 or 60 years. By 1875, the Silver Kings are fabulously wealthy. The Consolidated Virginia is paying dividends of a million dollars a month, something like a hundred million in today's money. San Francisco is seized by a speculative mania. If the Consolidated Virginia has hit the big bonanza, other mines might also. Thousands of shares of mining stock trade daily. People make and lose fortunes overnight. Charwomen buy the hotels they scrub floors in. Hack drivers give away their carriages to live on Knob Hill. Chinese gambling dens close because Chinese are gambling in mining stocks instead of Fantan. From 1873 to 1882, the Consolidated Virginia yields 65 million in gold and silver and pays 43 million in dividends, more than 4 billion in today's dollars. Here again is Ronald James. The, the deepest shaft here dropped over 3,000 feet, 3,200 feet. It's over a half mile, a straight elevator drop. And keep in mind, this is in 1870, 1880, when most people have never ridden an elevator anywhere. And to, to imagine these people being dropped down over half miles straight down, it, it, it really is something. There was a law on the Nevada books that said it's against the law to talk to a hoist operator. He was the fellow who, who was running the, the spool as it lowered the cages down. And it's, it's illegal to talk to a hoist operator while he's working, because if you distract him and he's off by 10 feet, that, that could be fatal to the, to the guys in the cage as they drop down. The Silver Kings all live riotously well and die with multi-million dollar estates. William O'Brien 
contributes to charities and supports all his close relatives, especially the McDonough and Coleman families of San Francisco. James Flood buys San Francisco real estate, erects numerous buildings, funds new business ventures, and establishes the Nevada Bank. The Nevada Bank later merges with Wells Fargo. He donates large sums to charities. He and his wife and their children live on the fabulous 35-acre estate at Menlo Park. James Fair is elected to the U.S. Senate from Nevada, but spends most of his time accumulating real estate in San Francisco. He becomes the city's largest taxpayer. He also establishes two banks and a railroad. John Mackey forms a telegraph company, lays a cable across the Atlantic, and breaks the Western Union monopoly. He makes more millions. During his lifetime, he gives away more than five million in gifts. He also tears up IOU notes worth more than two million, like forgiving 200 million in today's money. When the great fire of October 1875 destroys the central part of Virginia City, including the town's Catholic Church, St. Mary's of the Mountains, Mackey donates much of the money to have St. Mary's rebuilt bigger and better than ever. During a slow period on the Comstock, Mackey secretly pays a Virginia City grocer to supply provisions to any miner out of work. He also is the largest contributor to Sisters Hospital, requiring only that his donations be kept confidential. John Mackey, James Fair, William O'Brien, and James Flood demonstrate that Horatio Alger characters were not confined to novels, but were found for real in America. And there you have it, the story of the Silver Kings. And my goodness, a $100,000 investment back then, and then plowing 200000 down more, digging, digging without success, digging again without success, reminding us of so many of the stories we've done in Midland, Texas, and the frackers who are doing the same thing underneath the ground that these Silver Kings were back in the day. This is Lee Habib, the Silver King's story, here on Our American Stories. Where the rain never falls, the sun never shines, it's dark as a dungeon way down in the mine. Well, it's many a man... This is Our American Stories, and on this day in history, in 1879, an American icon was born, and his name is Will Rogers. And by the way, Google his name, go on YouTube, and just watch. Watch his physicality, watch some of the scenes in the movies, watch him with a rope and a horse, uh, an American original. And so we decided to do what we often do here, and that's, well, get in touch with the folks who know the most about the person we're about to talk about. And there are so many great museums in this country. And one we're going to visit soon is the Johnny Cash Museum to celebrate his life. But the Will Rogers Memorial Museum in Claremore, Oklahoma, which, as Will Rogers liked to say, was right in the middle of the world. Well, there, Andy Hogan is the historical guide, the resident historian, so to speak, 
again, of the Will Rogers Memorial Museum. And Andy joins us now. Andy, tell us a little bit about Will Rogers' early life. Where did he grow up? How did he grow up? Who was his dad? We love starting with the father before we get to the son. All righty. Will Rogers' mother and father were both about one-fourth Cherokee. They were attending a Cherokee college when they met and married at age 19. They wanted to stay in a Cherokee district of Indian Territory, so they moved to the little area of Uligaw, which is near Claremore. They started a trading post. The Civil War came along, and the Cherokees chose to go with the side of the South, which we felt was a good move. And uh, they, Will's dad fought with the Cherokee Cavalry Group, commanded by a Colonel William Penn Adair. And that's where Will got his name then, was William Penn Adair Rogers from that colonel. The oldest daughter died during the Civil War, and Will's mom and dad lost their trading post, of course, losing the war. And after that, they started a farm near the same area, all on Cherokee lands. They didn't have to buy the Cherokee lands. They could use it. They didn't own it particularly, but Cherokees held everything in common. Fourteen counties in northeastern Oklahoma comprised the original Cherokee Nation. So Will's dad was able to use a 60,000-acre area as a farm located between the Verdigree and the Caney River. Uh, he began to get cattle on this land, and, of course, during the Civil War, there were a lot of longhorn cattle that were not owned by anybody down in Texas and Mexico. And so Will's dad could get them brought up here for about $6 a head. And uh, so he accumulated as many as about 6,000 head on his 60,000 acres. Wow. Will being the only boy of a family with uh, eight siblings originally, but only four survived, three older sisters, and Will. So Will got to be the cowboy. Of course, girls did girl things back then. Boys did boy things. Well, when it came time to go to school, well, little Willie, Willie Rogers didn't want to go to school. He wanted to be the cowboy. He wanted to stay home. So he kind of balked at going to school, and he said, I, I, I'll go, but I ain't going to learn nothing. He said, I'm successful, too. <laughs> he said, I, he said I, wanted, I wanted to remain ignorant. Boy, you talk about successful. But then he said, you know, we're all ignorant. We're just ignorant on different subjects. But, you know, he didn't do well in school because he had the wiggles real bad. Uh, he just couldn't sit still. He liked to play with that rope. At age 14, he went to the World's Fair in Chicago, 1893. Watched the Buffalo Bill Wild West show. Watched the Mexican trick roper. And then he decided, I'm going to learn to do those tricks. And he set about practicing, and Will had good hand-eye coordination, and he was extremely driven. Women call it hard-headed, but men call it driven. <laughs> <laughs> he, learned, he learned to do those tricks, and when his dad finally sent him to a military school because of his lack of discipline, he went there for two years, and he had so many demerits built up and had so much punishment coming in the way of marching, he ran off from school, quit school when he was 18. He said, I regret quitting when I was 18 because I just never did take a chance on that fifth grade. <laughs> and said, tell I, me I, this, tell me this, the degree to which he was sort of a, a, a cynic about much and an optimist about much, but so much of his worldview, how much of it comes from the, the Cherokee part of his heritage? Uh, very little of it, actually. Uh, uh, he grew up knowing that, that, that nobody was perfect, that, that, that he started kind of down at the bottom because Indians were not well thought of that much. And him being one-fourth, he kind of had to fight a little upriver a little uh, harder, he felt like. Right. But 
Will just had that that understanding of people when they thought of something, when they did something. He looked for the foibles, he looked for the fallacies, and he'd pick on those things. And of course, he was the satirist, for what he was actually. But he did it in a playful manner, no malice intended. Never met a man I didn't like. He said and that's the reason I've teased all these important people, and they'll take they'll take teasing. That a big man will take teasing. That's what makes him big. The little man don't take teasing too well because he wants to be big. But Will got to know. Well, I tell everybody he was an advisor to seven of our presidents at one time. They didn't want his advice, but he gave it to him anyhow. <laughs> How much? Tell me this: when he was he developed these incredible roping skills, but then he he learned he had these incredible talking skills. This 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 person who had sort of shunned formal education was able to speak a certain brand of Americana and Americanese that I think created modern satire and, in a way, modern comedy. He he took his roping skills from the Wild West show to the vaudeville stage. On the vaudeville stage, he'd mumble. And like he'd miss a rope trick, he'd have something funny to say. Well, the people that worked with him said, Will, you're a riot. Don't just say it where we can hear it on the stage. Say it where your audience can hear it. So he began to talk. And he began, people people liked that. And then after he finally got married, his wife said, you sat at the breakfast table, and you tell me funny things about everything you read in that paper. Tell you tell you public that. So he began to talk about it on the stage then. And he would put it in terms that were funny, whatever he had read. He'd have put his views on it, his slants on it. And he just had the, he had, he was quick-witted as Jay Leno and Johnny Carson and Jack Parr. He had that same kind of quick wit. Yeah, and he had great time. He had great timing too, guy. I mean, it was remarkable. Tell me this: When did he decide to say goodbye to the rope and just say uh, yes ne- to the writing and the humor? Never did. Nope. He kept that rope all the time. Uh, he uh, his last six years, he lived in a house overlooking the ocean in Santa Monica, California. He kept horses, he kept goats, and he kept calves out there. He turned the calf roping. And uh, things like, like that is a hobby out there, but he kept that rope going all the time. And, and he just, was, he, he was, just, he just dropped it in his, in his public act, so to speak. Um, well, but the passion for the rope was always there. Right. When he became a movie star, of course, he couldn't use the rope. He did it. He used it in a few, a few movies. Right. But, I mean, he had dropped it. When he was on the radio, of course, it wasn't doing him any good. When he was writing newspaper articles, of course, he wasn't using it. But when he was the after dinner speaker, or the, what we call a stand-up comedian, uh, then he'd pull out the rope and play with it. That's great. Continued at age 55 when he died in the plane crash. Well, uh, he still he was still doing roping skills. If folks were to go to the Will Rogers Memorial Museum in Claremore, Oklahoma, and as you said, it's right in the middle of the world. Or Will Rogers said that. What did you say about New York City? Seventeen hundred miles turn right, and and that's Claremore. He said if you go if you go seventeen hundred miles west. New York City, when you get to Sid Millican's barn, turn left. There you are. <laughs> there it is. By the way, I want to read, folks, just a few things, and then I'd like you to share one or two things about the museum. When we come back, we'll really dig into the, the formal part of his life and I think how everyone came to know him. And it had a lot to do with his political satire. He became a very sharp student of Congress, a very sharp student, and I think not cynical, but just, again, looking at man and looking at him straight and honest, and not in a mean way. But some of the lines, a man only learns in two ways, one by reading and the other by association with smarter people. Another, the minute you read something you can't understand, you're almost sure that it was drawn up by a lawyer. 
And the short memories of the American voters is what keeps our politicians in office. And time and time again, he would spin these really clever lines. The man was just an outstanding writer, as we'll learn when we come back. And we'll be taking a tour, well, the only way we can on radio, talking about it, with the historical guide of the Will Rogers Memorial Museum, Andy Hogan, in Claremore, Oklahoma, again, right in the middle of the world. When we come back, more on Will Rogers, born on this day in history in 1879. American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Andy Hogan, the historical guide of the Will Rogers Memorial Museum. We're talking about Will Rogers because he was born on this day in 1879, an iconic figure in American history, a brilliant writer, and just, it's as American as Mark Twain. The voice was as American, and it started a type of writing and thinking and talking that's just what I call plain speak, not fancy talk. Uh, two more quotes before we, we go on. Even if you're on the right track, said Will Rogers, you'll get run over if you just sit there. And the other, there are three kinds of men, the ones that learn by reading, the few who learn by observation, and the rest of them, well, they have to pee on the electric fence for themselves. <laughs> that sounds like most of my friends. That's and Guy, yes, that is you, Greg. <laughs> and Guy, let's talk a little about this life. How did Will Rogers get from where he was to a place like California. All right, Will went from the uh, Wild West shows because of his roping skills to the vaudeville. Then he began to talk, and when he began to talk, that's when he went the big time. He even, uh, he even worked for the Ziegfeld Follies in New York City two different times. Uh, he finally made a silent movie in New Jersey while he was living there on uh, working in the vaudeville. And after that, he moved to California. He took all of his family out there, lost one son to diphtheria after he got out there, but he made 50 silent movies. He made 21 talking movies after the talking movies came along. And all this time, uh, he had little money to spend, so he would send, uh, he was a freelance reporter, I'd say. He'd send telegrams to the presidents, uh, to new newspapers, to magazines, and so forth. And finally, there was a syndicated group out of New York City that realized, you know, he's got something there. Let's get him to sign up and just, you know, just write exclusively for us. So beginning in 1922, he began to write a weekly newspaper article. Then in 1926, he began to write a daily newspaper article. And those were really read by, well, 400 different towns it was syndicated to. And how did he write? Well, about like the fourth grader that he was. When he, well, he always teased about quitting school when he's in the fourth grade, even though he's 18 years old. But he wouldn't use good grammar. He wouldn't spell words correctly. He wouldn't use proper punctuation, capitalization. So Will did it his way. And he said one time, if you can't be the best at something, we'll be different than everybody else. <laughs> he spent, spent, spent a lot of time being different. He liked to do the unexpected. And when he wrote the newspaper articles, that gave him an excuse to travel. Well, the more he traveled, 
the more knowledge he gained. And I don't mean just in the United States, but he traveled all over the world. Uh, he could go to other countries. He met Mussolini. Uh, uh, he Several shows that he did in uh, London, and he worked in uh, Germany and so forth. Uh, he went to Egypt. Somebody asked him if he saw the Sphinx when he was over there, and he said, no, I didn't need to. I'd, I'd already seen Mr. Coolidge. Uh, <laughs> love, love to tease Calvin Coolidge, old stone face. Yep. <laughs> uh, but, he, but he had that way of doing it, but he never changed. Uh, he became a multimillionaire through all of his earnings, plus he began to buy and sell property. After he got to California, he became uh, quite a buyer and seller of real estate. Now, the museum today is located on land where Will never lived in Claremore, which is actually 13 miles from where he was born and raised. But what happened was Will bought land both in Oklahoma and in California. So the land here where the memorial is located was land that he and Betty had bought in 1911. He, he actually owned the Santa Monica Beach at one time. He sold some land to a fellow named Bell out there in California, developed Bell Air, California. His house where he lived out there the last six years of his life is a California state park because his wife gave it to the state of California when she gave the 20 acres in Claremore to the state of Oklahoma. So that's why there are memorials located in both of those two places. And tell me about his wife. Tell me about his wife, if you could. This is an important part of his life. Um, share, Share a bit about her with us. He met her when they were 20 years old in the train station at Udigal. She was from Rogers, Arkansas, ironically. Uh, and Will liked Betty. Betty liked Will. They were 20 years old, both of them, when they met. And they had a whirlwind romance and got married eight years later. Took him eight years to convince that gal to marry him. He was not your take-home-to-mother type as a young man. And uh, he said, I kept telling her, when we got 28, you got to marry me, Betty, because I'm the only one left. <laughs> we're so old, nobody, nobody will have either one of us. We're so old. They finally agreed to marry him. He said, "That's the, you know, I did a lot of rope tricks. The best rope trick I ever did is roping that Betty. But she stuck with him all the way, and she was a great companion. She she kind of kept him on the, on the go all the time, uh, keeping him straight. Uh, had four kids, I'd say three of which were raised to adults. Uh, but, but she was just a, a great companion. She said I could go with him wherever I wanted to, but I couldn't keep up with him. None of us could. But he was so active, said the... Uh, that never heard him say he got tired, said he just wanted to see him be home, and two days later he was ready to go again. But he just wanted to be moving all the time. And he was so hyperactive that that worked to his advantage because he just he progressed so much. I mean, he just accomplished so much in 55 years, all the different types of show business he was in. Well, he was very, he was also very, he had a lot to say about Congress. He had a lot to say about taxes and government. Uh, what led him to become almost the nation's leading humorist and maybe one of the only humorists when it came to just talking about politics daily. He was way ahead of his time. He was way ahead of John Stewart and the night show guys. Talk about that. The newspaper. He read, he read every newspaper that he could get. Now, when he was in New York city and then out close to Los Angeles, he had a lot of papers to read. So he'd read those papers and that's people ask him who, who wrote his material. And he said, Congress, <laughs> Yep. They're funnier than anything I could come up with. Now, he had some quotes that that really are, are relevant today, too. He talked about the election. He said, you know, we had an election last Tuesday. He said, I'm so glad to get that thing over with. I'm so tired of hearing about that election, but it'll be three years before we can get all the dirt swept up. Yep, yep. Nothing changes. 
There's, oh, I, I went through a, I, you know, I, Andy, I went through a page of quotes on elections on Republicans <laughs> and Democrats, and he oh, yeah. got both parties right. And it's still true today. He made fun of the Democrats for the right reasons. He made fun of Republicans for the right reasons. And you know what, Andy, almost nothing's changed. He could come back with that act and he could kill. Absolutely. Tell me this. Yeah, I, in the museum, Andy, what, what, tell us about an exhibit or two. We can't see it. But describe one or two things if, uh, if our folks are traveling across this great country and want to go to the Will Rogers Memorial Museum in Claremore, Oklahoma, right in the middle of the nation, what would they see? It's a mile off of Old 66 Highway, the Will Rogers Memorial. Uh, the memorial located on the 20 acres that they had purchased, and Betty originally wanted it as a memorial. She didn't want it to become an amusement park, so there were, there were just two rooms that had anything. She saw that people treated it respect. Then she began to bring memorabilia, and it became the museum that it is today. But as you go into the museum, uh, you see Will's life as a cowboy, which he never got over. Uh, he loved the, you know horses all of his life, good horses, uh, lots of saddle, lots of tack, lots of memorabilia. Through that respect, uh, you'll see ropes, all different kinds of ropes in different countries. Uh, we have lots of videos of him. Uh, of his movies, we play a different one every day, one of his uh, talking movies. And uh, you can see, of course, today we have Will's tomb out there because Will was originally buried in California when he died. And then in 1944, after six years, uh, his body was brought back and placed there in Claremore with now six members of his family, his wife and his, some of his children and, and grandchildren are there now. But the memorial has uh, items that were relevant to him. Uh, we have lots of letters. We have a lot of his quotes written on the wall down there that really make a lot of sense. We have the uh, iconic statue, the copy of the one in Washington, D.C. Oklahoma has uh, two statues that are both part Cherokee. They're in the uh, Hall of Fame there in, in our uh, nation's capital, and we have that one there in the rotunda. Will is always proud of that Cherokee heritage, so you'll see a lot of uh, Indian-related things. Even though he didn't show any signs of, you know, being Indian or thing, I mean, he was just, you know, he was a cowboy uh, all his life. But, but he always brought that Cherokee heritage up, and you know, he said Andrew Jackson must have been a tough old cuss to thought of all the things that he could do mean to the Indians. And uh, but, but he always, always brought that through everything. Uh, we have the one room we call the Final Journey that tells about the plane crash in which he and Wiley Post were killed, and and uh, nine days they had flown in Alaska and killed on the, the ninth day, April, uh, August the 15th in 1935. So that room is, means quite a bit to see it. The grounds are on a hill that overlooks Claremore, and like I said, they had purchased this land. Buy all the land you can because they ain't making any more of it, Will said. Yep. So he bought this 20 acres, and it's located in a spot that just overlooks the whole town of Claremore, which is not that big, about 16,000. But it's a beautiful location, and for the memorial, it, it's made out of a local sandstone uh, quarried out there in the county, and it just fits right into the hillside, and it kind of has a little bit of an Indian uh, design motif to it inside. We have one room that has uh, both his family heritage and his, his Cherokee heritage both, but that the Cherokee Indian theme is kind of carried all throughout that also. Well, Andy, we appreciate that short tour. We appreciate the two segments with us. And thanks for all you do, and we're hoping folks get to the Will Rogers Memorial Museum in Claremore, Oklahoma. Andy Hogan, historical guide at that museum. Thanks so much for joining us. 
This is Lee Habib, and the final quote we'll leave you with from Will Rogers. Lead your life so you wouldn't be ashamed to sell the family parrot to the town gossip. And that's not a bad idea. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, the life of Will Rogers, born on this day in history in 1879. All of our This Days in History are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between. And we love telling your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And we ripped this next story straight out of the headlines of the Wall Street Journal, and it was one of the most popular stories for almost a month running. And... We decided to track it down, and today we have on Julie Lawson, the daughter of Sonny and Bryna Hurwitz. They raised their daughters Julie and Freda in Boston. In 2016, after Sonny and Bryna had both died, Julie took a DNA test and later got her sister Freda to do the same, revealing some shocking truths. Julie, let's start off in the beginning. What made you want to take this DNA test, and what happened? just simple curiosity. I had been working on my family tree through Ancestry.com for quite a while, several years, and my mom was still alive, so she could help me quite a bit with her side of the family. It just always interested me. I never felt rooted. I never knew my and felt connected family-wise. And I was just curious, and I like to research, and, you know, on those websites, one thing leads to another, so I decided to do my DNA. Nothing came up that surprised me on my DNA, right? So there was there was no shocker, but there were a couple of names that didn't mean anything to me. And when my DNA matched one of those names, that person reached out to me through Ancestry. His name is Larry, and he's a psychologist and lives in Long Island, and it turns out he's my second cousin. We share the same great-grandfather, but we didn't know any of this. But he was curious, and he also had a deep love of family history and ancestry and had been working on his tree for years, and he noticed my name show up on his list, and he wanted to know if I knew anything, and I knew nothing. And he would say, well, your mom's still alive. Why don't you get her to do the DNA? I said, well, yeah, maybe I'll send her a kit. And he said, your sister, too, because that'll really help. And I'm like, well, my, my sister lives in England. She's a very busy woman. It won't be her priority, but I'll keep bugging her to do it. So Larry and I stayed in touch intermittently, and he'd check in. I couldn't, we couldn't figure it out. We let it go. He never really let it go. So then, two years later, my mom has died, and she wouldn't do the DNA kit, which I never knew why she didn't want to do it. And then my sister, out of the blue, who's been living in England for 30 years, gets a two-year contract in the United States. 
and decides to move to Falls Church, Virginia, a place neither of us have ever been. She has no business even being in the United States, and she asks if I can come help her get settled and with child care. So I was on a plane, and while I was there, it dawned on me, she still hasn't done the DNA kit. I'm going to get her one. I'm going to make her spit. I'm going to get the kit. She's going to spit, and we'll go from there. So I did. So it was her test that came back with the shocker, because that is when the, the closest relationship that popped up to her was a man's name that we did not know. And it came up as a really close match. And we looked his name up on Facebook, and there we were staring at a man about 62 years old who looked just like our dad when dad was that age. But dad's been gone 11 years, and this stranger is looking at us. I'm like, oh, my God, that's dad. So we realized dad had an affair. We've got a brother, a half-brother. And I know that a lot of people don't see their Facebook private messages, and that's always frustrating. It could sit there forever. But within 20 minutes, he answered. And all I had said was, hmm, looks like we have a DNA match. Would love to talk to you about it. Because we didn't know what he knew. We didn't want to be the ones to shock him, a stranger saying, you look just like our dad. So we were very delicate about it. And... um I said, well, you know, I'm in Falls Church, Virginia. I live in Phoenix, but I'm visiting my sister and helping her get settled here. I have no idea where you are, but we'd love to talk. And he writes back and he says, you're in Falls Church, Virginia. I'm 45 minutes from you. And the next day is Mother's Day. And I say to him, well, this is amazing. You're 45 minutes from us, and I know Mother's Day is tomorrow, but we're not doing anything. And is there any chance you would come over? And he said, let me talk to my fiancé, and got back to me. And he said, yeah, we can be there at noon. Well, my sister had gone to bed. She didn't even know how far I had taken this. So when she wakes up in the morning, I said, we're going to be meeting our half-brother today. He's going to be here about noon with his fiancé. We started gathering pictures of Dad because we know that we're his sisters, but he doesn't know he's coming to meet his sisters. He doesn't know we know his dad, that we grew up with his dad. So Freda had not yet unpacked everything from England. We spent quite a time scurrying around, going through boxes to try and find photos of dad at different ages. And we did, and we had this stack, and we had it upside down on the dining room table, and the doorbell rang, and we, I opened the door, and it was, I was looking at my dead father, I mean, it was so weird. I mean, it was just, I I don't know what else to say other than he didn't just resemble Dad. It was like Dad was standing right there. It it was almost, I think I almost fainted. And, of course, I got emotional, and I had already warned him that I was the emotional one and Freda was the practical one. So he came in. He sat down at the dining room table. We made small talk. And so at some point I said to him, Dana, why do you think, what do you think our connection is? What do you think about this whole DNA thing? And he said, well, obviously, we're cousins some kind of way. I'm like, he thinks we're cousins. And I finally said to him, I just leaned into him, and I said, Dana, we are 99.9% sure we are not cousins. We think you're our brother. And I turned over the stack of pictures of Dad, and now he's looking 
at these photos of this man who he looks just like. He just went silent, actually. He didn't know what to say. And, I mean, I told him I already loved him. I said, I don't know what kind of person you're going to turn out to be, but we love Dad and we love you and you look just like Dad and this is so amazing and, oh, wow, we were so excited. We knew who his dad was and his mom died kind of young. And each time he had asked her through his youth, she would change the subject. And at one point he finally stopped asking. And when we come back, we're going to continue with Julie Lawson's story. My goodness, the scary side of DNA tests. But in the end, a truth revealed, a secret unveiled. Julie Lawson's story continues here on Our American Stories. And we continue with our American stories into our conversation with Julie Lawson. She and her sister had taken DNA tests and found out that they had a half-brother. So you find out in the end that there was a secret about an infidelity of your father's. And so let's talk about how that secret affected you and your sister. Well, when we first, the first secret of finding our brother was very exciting to find him and and welcome him, and that he lived 45 minutes away was amazing, and my sister has a 12-year-old son, and so now her son has an uncle, and, you know, they haven't lived in the United States, and and so this was great. So we were just happy-go-lucky. We have this new brother and his fiance, and it was really exciting. Let's talk about the, this gentleman. How did this secret affect him? He had to be relieved, in a sense. He finally knew who his dad was. <laughs> At first, he did kind of, I mean, he was in shock, of course, because we knew longer than he did. We had several hours to be thinking about it all. Um, he's a very laid-back, kind of cool, quiet guy, like Dad, actually. And, um, at, you know, he was speechless, and yet he seemed delighted that he had siblings, that he's finding out this truth. He, hadn't, he had not been on a quest at all to find out anything. He had sort of, like, given up on it. So um, to, he said, and he grew up an only child. So he seemed really excited about all of it. I mean, it was weird, and it was, you know, I don't, I don't know the adjectives to describe the whole thing because there's so it, it's like an avalanche of emotions. You, so that night, you had this puzzlement you had to deal with. So what happened was, because I used to look at my matches pretty regularly to see if anybody new popped up, um, cl- in a close uh, related match, like a first, second cousin or something. I wasn't interested in sixth to eighth cousins. 
but I would check it. So I was kind of familiar with the same names showing up. You know, they do it in order of closeness. So I kind of knew the names. And when he came up on my sister's uh, DNA, I don't know, some time went by, and I thought, you know, that name isn't familiar. Here's this guy. He looks like Dad. I don't remember it showing up on my list. So I looked at my list, and he wasn't on it. And I thought, well, maybe because he's a half-sibling, again, my ignorance, I don't know how DNA worked. I thought maybe we didn't share enough DNA for him to show up on my list, but he could show up on my sister's list. But that was my naivete and ignorance. And and, um, the cousin that had been in touch with me from my first DNA results, who was asking me all the time, how do you think we're connected? Will your mother do the test? Will your sister do the test? This was Larry. And so I called him like two days into this, and I said, well, something has come up. And I told him, now he's a psychologist, so I told him that this guy isn't on my list. He's on my sister's list, and he looks just like our dad. And Larry got it right away. He was really good over the years at looking at the puzzle pieces of his stuff, and he just, it dawned on him, well, if he's not on my list, then they have to have different fathers her sister and she are not full sisters because this guy is related to her sister and not her. So the two sisters can't be full sisters. He, he was the, the puzzle fixer. He brought all the pieces to the table and he wasn't going to tell me at first because he knew it was going to change my life. And he said, have you looked at the centimorgans between Dana and your sister? And I said, no, I don't know. What's a centimorgan? It sounds like an insect with a hundred legs or something. And and he said, no, it's a way of quantifying DNA. A certain range of centimorgans means you're a half-sibling. A certain is a full-sibling or parent-child relationship. So um, I looked at the centimorgans between him and my sister, and they fell into the correct range of half-siblings. At some point, Larry said, did you look at the centimorgans between you and your sister? And I thought, my first reaction was, well, why would I do that? I don't even care about my son of organs between me and my sister. And then I realized in a split second he was telling me something. I'm like, what is he meaning? And I looked at the centimorgans, and we had the same amount of centimorgans as she had with her other half-sibling. So I was a half-sibling. And that was a shocking moment. We didn't cry because, oh, now we're only half siblings. And it wasn't like that. If she had had no DNA, she'd always be my full sister. We cried, I think, the shock of it all. In that split second, we were learning that we didn't have the same father. And that my dad wasn't my dad. I mean, he was my dad, but he wasn't my father. And that... You know, it still feels fresh, obviously. I didn't even know I still had this emotion in me. But that split second is when we were freaking out. Like, what does this all mean? There's more to this. And if he's if my new brother is now not my brother because we share a different dad, and my dad isn't my father, who's my father? Oh, my God. It went from this incredible joy and delight it was like having dad around. And to suddenly not. You, you now have got to be curious again. It's almost like what, what really happened here? 
who's my in your at this late stage in your life you're asking yourself who's my daddy and who did that turn out to be julie oh, how did this how did this come to be that you made this discovery this was to larry helping me with all these puzzle pieces man my little cogs were so busy turning i was angry i was so hurt i had a night of being in a fetal position, wailing like a baby to my mother. I mean, why? What What did you do? What is this about? And, and now it was starting to make sense that all of this was explaining why she treated me the way she did. It was so intensely primal. A primal therapist would have had a ball with me. It was unbelievable. You talk about cathartic and so painful and so shocking. It's like your whole life, and people, I've heard people say, well, nothing really changed. Your dad's always going to be your dad. Your sister's always going to be your sister. And I want to strangle those people. I'm trying to be cool about it. They just don't get it. Of course, the content of my relationships don't change, but the context does. And that's shocking. It's just so much shock to the system of feeling so ungrounded and also getting an explanation at the same time for your torturous youth. You and your mom had a tough relationship, and oh. now, you, now you're understanding why. Your mom had a secret, too. That, And by the way, she had to bear that secret, and that was no duck walk either for her. I, I'm sure it wasn't. I know, so I went to that range of emotions, trying to put myself in the shoes of this young woman and what she was going through. I mean, so you want to have compassion for everybody in their story. I mean, we're all so damaged to some extent, and some of us get to process it and go on and do great, and some don't process it at all, and she was one that never processed any of it. She was a very immature woman throughout her life. And she had a lot of wonderful qualities and very loved by a lot of people. And she was a young girl, and she was in love with this boy that she was dating. And he wasn't in love with her. She was just a nice girl. And they were all friends in a small circle that double dated. And she wanted him to marry her. Her best friends were 17 and 18, and they were all engaged. She wanted to be engaged. She wanted to get out of her parents' house. She hated her stepmother. Um... And she fell in love with this boy, and he wasn't into her like that. And so they stopped dating. He told her, you know, if you want to get married, you really better find somebody else because I'm going to have a life of adventures. I've got things I want to do. And she went on and married my dad. And when we come back, we're going to continue this remarkable story with Julie Lawson. Again, this was ripped off the headlines of the Wall Street Journal and it was one of the most popular stories of the year. And when we continue, more with Julie Lawson. A DNA test turns her life and her sister's upside down. This is Our American Stories.
And we return to Our American Stories. Julie Lawson has been telling us her family's story. One day, she and her sister took a DNA test. Her sister showed as having a half-brother, but Julie, through the help of her cousin Larry, soon realized that she and her sister were half-sisters as well. So now she's left wondering, who's my daddy? Julie's mother fell in love in high school, but her boyfriend at the time was just not interested. So her mother married another man she didn't love. Julie, tell us what happened next. About a year and a half into the marriage, she'd already had her first child, my brother. She called her ex-boyfriend up. She heard he was... um, Oh, no, she she called him up because she wanted to go for a cup of coffee, supposedly. They got together, and um, they were commiserating. She was telling him that she wasn't happy in her marriage. It wasn't what she thought it would be or should be. And they had a one-night thing, and he told her afterwards that he felt really guilty and that she, we, they shouldn't do this anymore. And he said, look... You know, you're married, you have a child, and this has got to stop. You've got to go take care of your marriage. And so they never talked again, and I guess a few months later, she called him to say she was pregnant. And she didn't exactly say she knew it was his or thought it was his. Supposedly, she was just saying she was pregnant, and he, being 23 years old and tired of being kind of chased, um... He said to her, he said, you know what, he he thought she was trying to trap him. And he told her, you've got to take care of your marriage and don't call me anymore. Well, at 23 years old, he had his own mind, didn't want to even think about that. So Larry in New York, the psychologist, who's my second cousin, has been trying to put these pieces together. And he, when he realizes, and of course I get past the him telling me that I obviously have a different father, he went back and looked at our mutual matches on the DNA list. And he knows a lot of the family members, even though there's two sides of the family that I haven't talked in decades. He's helping me with these pieces, and he's looking at the ma- names of the matches, and he's clever enough to also go on Facebook and look at these people's pages. So he's looking at these names, and he says, look, there's this name, it's initials only, but I think you need to reach out to them. And then there's another name, which I know, which is a Greenberg, and you should try and reach this man, Les Greenberg, because a cousin of Les's is coming up as your second cousin, which means their parent is a first cousin, and if their parent is a first cousin, one of those uncles... Uh, uh, brothers is got to be your father and I'm like oh my god I couldn't believe that he had figured all this out so I'm looking for this man Les Greenberg looking at his page two things I see I see a name that's familiar from my childhood a person that's about my age that I grew up with in Boston is somehow connected to his page and I'm thinking it's got to be her but the other odd thing says is you have a mutual friend named Arthur Katz. Arthur Katz comes up as a mutual friend to me and Miss Greenberg, and I don't know any Greenbergs. I, say, I write to Arthur. I said, do you know this guy and how to reach him? And he says, yeah, hold on a minute. I'll get you his email. I'm like, oh, my God, this is so easy. And so he gives me Les's email, and I email him, and I said, we have a DNA connection, and I'd like to explore it further. 
and I have some questions, and would you be open to talking about it? And he said, sure. So we went back and forth with emails, and um, so I have to stop there for one moment just to say, when I was a kid, maybe 12 or 13, I asked my mother to share her love story with me about her and my dad. How did you meet? What did you have in common? How did you know he was the one? How did you know you wanted to spend the rest of your life with him? What kind of things did you do on dates? And she started the story. Well, she said, first I have to tell you that your dad wasn't my first love, which to a kid, it's kind of shocking. You just kind of think it is. I don't know. At least I did. And so I'm like, yeah, okay. And she said, my first love was high. And then she went on with the story about my dad. And so now I'm in touch with Les Greenberg, and he sends me an email, and I said to him, tell me who your uncles are. So Les writes me this list of his four uncles, and at the very bottom, and each one has a nickname in parentheses, and at the very bottom it says Ira, and in parentheses it says hi. So I knew that was my mother's childhood love, puppy love, who she said. Her love story started with hi. The odds of that email having nicknames in parentheses was just uh, remarkable. And I'm saying, of these four brothers, who's alive? Anybody alive? And he says, well, out of the four brothers, my uncle hi is alive. I said, oh, my God. Now I can hardly breathe. My father is alive. And he's 89. And he's in Florida, and for the first time in a long time, I'm on the East Coast with my sister in Virginia. And Les, I don't tell Les yet that I know that High's got to be my father. I tell him I want could I speak with High, and he says, yeah, and here's his number. And um, I called. I started out with, you know, my name. I didn't use my last name. And I said I was doing a DNA family tree search, and it looked like, you know, we had some things in common, would he mind answering some questions? And he was like, no, go ahead, ask me anything you want. I'm like, great, so did you know a Bryna? Now, it's a most unusual name, actually, so if you ever knew one, you wouldn't forget that you knew one. And he right away said, Bryna? Sure, I knew Bryna. I thought, oh, God, now my heart's really pounding. And I said, um, did you know her as a friend within a circle of friends? Uh, or did you date her? And he said, no, we dated. I'm like, oh, God, here we go. I said, hi, I have a really personal question to ask you. And it's really uncomfortable asking it, but it would really help me greatly. And he said, go ahead, ask me anything you want. I said, did you have sex with her? Did we have sex? Yeah, we had sex. I, and that's when I really felt like I knew for sure. And I, this is what I said to him. I said, hi, are you sitting down? And he says, I'm 89. I'm almost always sitting down. And I said, do you have any heart conditions? And he said, heart conditions? No, I had a stint about 10 years ago, but I'm good. I said, great. I said, Brian is my mother, and I'm 99.9% sure you're my father. 
and there was a moment of silence, and he said, Julie, you're blowing my mind. And I thought, oh, my God, I haven't heard that expression since the 60s. And he sounds like quite a character, and I know he's totally shocked. And, and he was very, stand, became standoffish. And he said, I, I don't know what, what made you think that this is true. You don't have my DNA to test. And how did you get my number? So I mentioned all the names, his nephews, his nieces. These are my first cousins that I never knew. And they're his nieces and nephews. I realize he's pretty upset. So I try, like, reroute the direction the conversation was going. And I start to ask him about his life. And we were on the phone for over an hour. But I think towards the beginning, actually, I said, he says to me, well, I don't know what you want from me. What do you want from me? And I started to cry. And I just said, I want you to tell me to come to Florida. I want to meet you. And when we come back, this remarkable story continues... There's going to be a trip to Florida, and Julie will be meeting her dad. More of Julie Lawson's story here on Our American Stories. Return to Our American Stories in the last part of this amazing story. Julie Lawson has been telling us how she found out her dad was not really her dad, and she then got in contact with her real biological father, who lives in Florida. She told him, quote, I want you to tell me to come to Florida. I want to meet you. Julie, what did he say next? He says, come to Florida? Come to Florida? I don't know. Well, if you want to come, come. I said, no, I'm not going to come with that tone of voice. So I I redirected the conversation, and he spent an hour telling me about his life and the order of things. And um, he was quite a character. He's funny, and he's got a great, sharp mind. And, I I mean, actually quite amazing. And... um, Towards the end of the conversation, he said, well, I don't know what else to say. And I said again, just tell me to come to Florida. I think because maybe I inserted a little Yiddish in the conversation, and I was, I'm was i a really good listener, and I was so taken by his story, and I had so many questions. I think I softened him a little bit because his tone of voice changed this time. And he said, you want to come to Florida, come. And that was it. I said, I'm going to try and be there within a couple of weeks. And do you know that the week that I was able to get a flight turned out to be the weekend of Father's Day. So this started on Mother's Day, and I met my father and shared his first Father's Day. He never married. He never had children. He didn't know I existed. And at 89, he had a daughter and his first Father's Day. Well, I went to Florida and a couple of days right before Father's Day, his nephew, Les, who had sent me that email, lives an hour away and had arranged to meet me. Les met me at the um, independent living home where I was living. I opened the door and 
he reached out his arms to me. He said, welcome home, darling. I tried to keep it together. I mean, there I am with a total stranger. It was very mixed emotions. I almost felt an instant love for him. We had a month of conversations before we met. And we would talk a long, long time. And so I did feel this love, and yet it was weird because he's still a total stranger. My mission in sharing my story is I want to find a way to encourage parents to tell their children the truth. Some people say it's not that black and white an issue, but for me it is, even taking into consideration children who are born from rape, from incest, from whatever unusual ways it could be. I mean, I I understand, but I think all children at some age, when it's age-appropriate and in a safe emotional environment with a professional, I think we all deserve to know who our biological parents are. It doesn't mean we'll choose to have a relationship with them. And I, I believe all men have a right to know they have offspring on this planet. I want to encourage people to tell the truth. I know they're afraid. They're afraid of consequences. They're afraid of rocking other boats. They're afraid of being judged. But we can't live our life in fear of what other people think. What they think is none of our business. We need to we need to tell the truth of our lives so that other people get to live the truth of their lives. This is I think so the deepest part of the story and I think what I think people are also afraid to do is in the end tell the truth to themselves. For my mother, every minute, I was a reminder of her indiscretion, the lie she was living. The, the pain that she had to live with her whole oh, life? Oh, yeah. And oh. The, longer, the longer she lived the lie, the harder it was to come forward. Oh. Because when my dad died 11 years ago, she could have told me. If she was trying to protect him, she could have told me. And then I was with her the last 10 days of her life, and she was lucid. And she could have told me. She had many opportunities to break free from this self-imposed judgment and shame. You know, she had many years to process it, and she chose not to. And in some ways, it's because she was just incredibly emotionally damaged herself and didn't know how to really do it. But on the other hand, at some point when you're an adult, I think it is your responsibility to look at your crap and process it and try and come out the other side of it. And um, she just wasn't evolved enough to do anything about her damage. Yep. And so instead, she damaged me severely. I grew up thinking I was mentally retarded. Emo- that back then, it was labeled emotionally disturbed. I was taken to shrinks when I was very young. She was. She just didn't know how to look at me and be loving. I know she loved me, but she couldn't treat me lovingly at all, ever. I've been disowned. I've been put on the street. I ran away from home at 15 with nothing on my back but the clothes I was wearing uh, in the middle of a blizzard. I mean, I had to do something to save a piece of my soul because I kept thinking, I bet I'd be a different person if it weren't for all this stress every day and all her nonsense. I, I could find out who I am. I could just be me instead of going to school and zoning out. I can't focus because I'm worrying about what happened last night and what's going to happen when I get home and I'm feeling so small and I have no self-esteem and I'm a loner and I'm now growing up being abused by my older brother who I adored and then he went from being my hero to an abuser. Um, 
I left home at 15 and went to the streets of New York City. I had a really rough life. I never knew what a parent's love felt like. And I am in love with my birth father. We have so much in common. It's uncanny what we have in common. And we adore one another. And we we could just we talk for hours. Sometimes we talk every day, every other day. Um, I just came back from his 90th birthday party. I got to be with my father on his 90th for his birthday party. He chose four songs to express his feelings through music because he said he didn't want to bore everybody, that he'd say a little something between songs. And one of the songs he chose for us was Ella Fitzgerald singing, How Deep is the Ocean? That's how deep his love is for me. And two nights ago, when we were talking, he said, oh, Julie, having you in my life, he said, you know, I was lucky. I was the baby of the family. I was loved by everybody. I had family. But it's so different having a daughter, this kind of love. I mean, you're mine. I have a daughter. I'm 89. This was when he was 89. He first said it. He was crying. I said, why are you crying? He says, I've missed 65 years of knowing my daughter. I had a daughter walking the earth that I didn't get to know. And you know what, Lee? He grew, he, I grew up around the corner from where he was. I could have known him the first 25 years of my life. All the love I missed out on, all the things I could have, I would have had a soft place to land had I not been the secret what you still have is such a remarkable gift. And this man this man had chosen to never, never marry, and he had chosen to never have kids. And my goodness, what a gift for him. That's what a what gift for said. him. He just told me the other night, he said, you've changed my life. He said, I feel so different. I have a daughter. And I said, I know. I said, and you could have been a jerk, and I wouldn't have liked you, or I could have been a jerk, and you wouldn't have liked me. But look at us. And uh, by the way, it was clear that you guys, you, you both shared the most important of all things, which is a common sense of humor. He cracks me up. He's a great joke teller. I could never remember jokes. Oh, does he have a slew, and they're pretty good, and he's got a good delivery. To me the other day, he says, you know, Julie, I've been thinking. I said, what you been thinking about? He said, I've been thinking about what I want on my headstone. I said, your headstone? He says, well, you know, I'm 90 years old. You think about these things. I said, yeah, that makes sense. I said, so what do you want? Did you come up with something? He says, yeah. I wanted to say, stop by any time. I'm always in. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. He's adorable. Oh, well, lucky you is all I can yeah, tell you. And lucky I am him. So lucky. lucky him. Yeah, that's what he says all the time. <laughs> How lucky he is that he has a daughter like me. He said to me, he said, if I had met a woman like you, I'd have married. Wow. How about that? How about Neither of my parents ever expressed any joy about my presence in their life. Amazing. So this is an amazingly cathartic experience for me. I get to be 65 years old and feel this kind of love. And you've been listening to Julie Lawson, and what a story she has to tell. It's a movie, folks. I mean, my goodness, what a movie it would be. And I am sure that as all of this DNA testing happens around this world and around this country. My goodness, these are stories that I would bet are popping up all over the country. And by the way, I think Julie's right. Every parent should tell the truth to their kids when they're ready. And all children at some time do deserve to know 
who their biological parents are. And I even love the way she said that men, they too deserve to know. And my goodness, when she started to talk about her parents, her life, and how she felt so small, she felt so alone, she felt abused, she left home at 15, she did have a really, really rough life. And my goodness, we know why. When she said those words, neither of my parents ever expressed any kind of joy about having me in their life. Uh, Just like a kick in my gut. And we know why now. The mother had an illegitimate child, and the father knew it. And the father also knew that the mother didn't love him. And she knew it. What a disaster. And what a story, and what courage for telling it. Julie Lawson's story. My goodness, more people like her. I'm sure are out there than we know. Julie Lawson's story, her sister's story, and of course, High's story. And in the end, a beautiful love story here on Our American Stories.